Hi everyone, this is Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and for this episode of Rendering Unconscious, I'm going to talk about and read a little bit from my book, Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut and Creation. Um, I'm in a few study groups, and in one of them, friend, colleague, and comrade, Dr. Robert Bashara uh, chose a selection from this book of mine for the group to read, and that was a really interesting experience. It was really great to hear people discuss the work, and it got me very inspired, and as I do have an event coming up, on June 26th, that's a Saturday, with Morbid Anatomy Museum online. Uh, the event will be at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 7 p.m. here in Europe, um, on Saturday, June 26th. So if you like what you hear in this episode and you want to hear more, then come to the event. I'll post the link to the event in this episode text so that you can sign up. Morbid Anatomy Museum is great. I worked with them in New York when we were all there and when they had a brick and mortar museum there in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And I hosted a series of events there on psychoanalysis and the arts and the intersection with the occult uh, through Morbid Anatomy Museum. And that was a really great series of events and discussions. And um, this September, I'm going to be hosting another series of events along those lines with them. So stay tuned for that. But first, I have my own discussion of this book, Scansion and Psychoanalysis and Art, coming up on June 26th. Uh, their website is morbidanatomy.com and uh, might be morbidanatomy.org. I'll link to it Um and you can find all the information you need there. And they also have a great Patreon, which for $5 a month, you get access to all these lectures, uh, recordings of all these lectures, and they have over 80 of them at this point, and they're all quality content. So I'm a member of uh, their Patreon, and I highly recommend it as well. So for today, um, I'm going to just read a little bit from the book, Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut and Creation, to give you a taste. The relationship between psychoanalysis and the fine arts is long and rich, and in fact has been present from the very beginning. As Sigmund Freud was developing the field of psychoanalysis, he applied his new and evolving concepts to the study of artworks and artists, including Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, as well as to the study of sociocultural events and phenomena. Freud studied the individual, groups, culture, and society at large. In The Moses of Michelangelo, Freud began... I may say at once that I am no connoisseur in art, but simply a layman. Nevertheless, works of art do exercise a powerful effect on me, especially those of literature and sculpture. Freud tended to critique art the way one would analyze a dream, by taking apart the various components of the piece and making greater sense of the whole through the exploration of its parts. 
Freud felt that by applying the methods of psychoanalysis to art and literature, one might decipher the underlying meaning and intention of the creator, much as one analyzes the manifest content of a dream to unearth the latent content at play beneath the surface. In this study, however, I am not concerned with analyzing the work of artists in this way. I am more concerned with the process of creation itself, the creative act, rather than the aesthetic value, details, or symbols of the artworks themselves. My focus remains on the process, the moment, the spark of inspiration the artist expresses in and through the creation of a work of art, and the potential of this act to subvert the capability art has to challenge narratives, systems of control and oppression by dislocating the artist and the audience from the expected, the day-to-day, the norm that up until this point had been maintained as the status quo. The advent of Jacques Lacan brought the concept of scansion into psychoanalytic theory and practice. With this term, Lacan highlighted the potential power and value that disruption of the narrative may have. Concerning clinical practice, Lacan argued that it is best for an analysis to leave the session in a moment of engaged possibility rather than at the end of a set period of time. The consistency of the same 45 to 50 minutes of a traditional session allows the analysand to learn when the time of the session is coming to an end, even if there is no clock or way of referring to the time physically present in the room. Clinicians have observed a variety of situations in which analysands defensively, often unconsciously, utilize the frame of the standard 45-50 minute session. For example, an analysand might ruminate, mull over, and rehash material from their day for 45 minutes, only to drop a bomb of information in the last moments before the end of a session. In this case, there is no time left in the static frame of a session to be able to properly address the material presented. Unconsciously, the analysand knows this and in fact presented the material in a way to be able to release it while at the same time not having to fully confront it. In this way, static session time has been used in a defensive manner, allowing the analysand to exit the session without really addressing the matter just raised. In another scenario, an analysand may be slow to warm up in the beginning and then is able to open up more towards the middle of the session. This is typically when those aha moments are experienced and deeper material is reached. Then, as the session nears its end, the analysand may seem to backpedal, refute, or otherwise undo the insights just gleaned as they put their defenses back into place in preparation to leave the session and return to the world outside. 
It may be argued that this is a necessary part of the process, as it may not be preferable for the analysand to re-enter the social realm in such a raw, opened state. And that may make sense when a person is only attending sessions once a week. However, in an analysis, the analysand would likely meet with the analyst again in a couple of days, perhaps even the following day. Therefore, the overall frame of the treatment, the trust and rapport that has been built between the analyst and analysand through the establishment of the treatment itself, plus the increased frequency of sessions typical in psychoanalysis, provides enough of a secure holding environment for the analysand. As much of what happens in psychoanalysis occurs outside of the session in the analysand's day-to-day life, it may be argued that with this frame of frequency and rapport in place, it is not only safe but potentially even more productive for the analysand to leave the session in the midst of one of those aha moments, rather than at the end of an allotted amount of time, after defenses have been put back into place. In this way, the analysand is more likely to continue to reflect on the material just experienced even after the session has ended, and the psychoanalytic work may continue on outside of session, as opposed to when an analysand leaves the session after having re-sutured the unconscious. And this is a quote from Celeste Petrusa and Derek Hook. What then seems difficult to deny is that while the conventional 50-minute session provides a secure, regular, and containing space within which patients may speak, what it forecloses are the prospective therapeutic benefits related to the effects of interruption and suspension, separation, and non-resolution. The above was a gross explanation of the idea behind Lacan's infamous variable length session, which many call the cut session or short session, because although the theory is that the session could be any length from five minutes to two hours, since the end of the session comes not after an allotted amount of time, but rather is based on the productions of the analysis speech, The reality is that Lacan tended towards shorter sessions as opposed to longer. Unfortunately, that is one of the drawbacks or arguments against using variable length sessions in practice. Whether one agrees with this idea of the cut session or not, we can still see the value behind this concept. The idea that in these moments when the analysis unconscious appears more open, when slips of the tongue occur or jokes are made, there is a value in marking these moments in some way to help bring them to the analysand's attention. Lacan developed methods to highlight these moments using scansion as a way to punctuate or note these instances when the unconscious slips out. One way is by ending the session abruptly. However, one may also mark these moments through various other interventions, such as reflecting the analysis own language, thereby marking a signifier by simply repeating a word. 
An intervention as simple as that creates a pause, a disruption in the analysis speech or narrative, and this moment may provide a place for potential reflection or insight on the part of the analysand. This moment, the space created by such an intervention, is a disruption, a scan, a cut. The cut engenders anti-normalization. Anything normative fixes desire, including our identity, ego. Itself a construct formed via a lifetime of identifications and projections. As one begins to believe that this construct is indeed one's self, it may become rigid and even stagnant. Scansion is a means to shake up these stories we tell ourselves and allow us space from them so that we may see there are alternatives, options, and possibilities. When an analysand is speaking, I sometimes ask, whose words are those? I've noticed that analysands are often actually reiterating narratives imposed upon them by parents, family, and society, sometimes since birth, sometimes since before birth, even. We are born into history, language, and social structures. Our words and positions are not our own. We are interjected into an interplay of interpersonal dynamics, projections, dreams, wishes, and desires, as well as social systems, all of which precede us. Psychoanalysis allows for a space where we may take a step back for a moment, look at the forces at work, and begin to be able to make choices from our position within these discourses, rather than feeling as if we are constantly caught up in them, enacting and reacting to dynamics at play of which we are not consciously aware, but nevertheless affect us pervasively from within as well as from without. The method of scansion has been applied throughout the arts, music, literature, and poetry, as well as in psychoanalysis, and in many ways the effect is similar. Historically, in poetry, scansion is a method describing the rhythm of a poem through the breaking up of its lines or verses into feet, working on meter, marking the locations of stresses, accented and unaccented syllables, and so on. Adapted from the classical method of analyzing ancient Greek and Roman verse, scansion can be thought of in terms of scanning, examining a line or verse to discern its rhythm and thereby revealing the underlying mechanics or structures of a poem. The purpose of scansion is to enhance the reader's sensitivity to ways in which the rhythmic elements in a poem convey meaning. Deviations in a poem's metrical pattern are often significant to its meaning. This method of scansion has been utilized in a similar way regarding 
the rhythm and form of pieces of music. After all, what is rhythm but a series of punctuations or cuts? If there were no cut, we would be left with one endless note or tone. When framed in this way, one may see the similarities of scansion in poetry and music to those of Lacan's concept of scansion, as in disruption, deviation, or cut, and also, at the same time, to Freud's concept of evenly suspended attention that the analyst is encouraged to maintain. Just as the reader scans a poem or piece of music to locate the underlying structure and rhythm, as well as deviations from that framework, the analyst attempts to maintain the free-floating attention conducive to noting patterns of transference, signifiers, slips, double entendre, displacement, condensation, metonymy, and metaphor. Again, this is another quote from Celeste Petrusa and Derek Hook, all linked to the paper in the text. By creating what might in poetry be thought of as a line break, Scansion cuts Analysand's speech, leaving them with a sense of ambiguity and multiplicity. The analyst does not directly interpret, and thus the last words of a session become not the very last words on a matter, but instead jumping off points for the analysand's free association and unconscious productions. Scansion is another royal road to the unconscious, like free association and dreams. Resonant of the fundamental cut inherent in subjectivity itself, Scansion highlights the divide between conscious and unconscious, self and other, dream and waking states. With his fundamental rule of free association, Freud encouraged the analysand to follow her train of thought wherever it led. In the course of our day-to-day lives, there are many thoughts and associations we reflexively push aside so that we may continue with the story we are relating to ourselves. We tend to work hard to maintain focus on the narrative we have developed of ourselves and the world and we often adhere to it rigidly. Even bending new information to fit within our preconceived structure, rather than daring to augment ourselves or our belief systems in order to integrate the fresh insights we've gleaned. The practice of free association encourages us to disrupt this tendency of ours. Freud implored us, to follow these seemingly tangential trains of thought wherever they might lead, as they always prove to be relevant even if the connection is not immediately clear. In the present study, I navigate a line of artists and intellectuals who create through cutting up, using scansion, juxtaposition, disruption, techniques that illuminate the underlying structures or dynamics of the unconscious, the inner workings of free association and dreams, displacement and condensation, 
metonymy, and metaphor. I have chosen to begin with the advent of photography and move through the turn of the previous century, through the onslaught of modern art up to the dawn of the millennium and into contemporary artists of our time. This book is divided into four parts. The first section, Sowing Seeds, Setting the Stage, delineates events that facilitated the zeitgeist in which both psychoanalysis and the avant-garde as we know it first emerged. The advent of photography and later film created a huge cultural shift, providing perspectives never before gleaned. Artistic movements such as symbolism, impressionism, expressionism, and fauvism paved the way for the century to come. Specific artists working before the turn of the century and World War I are discussed. In the second part, Unleashing the Unconscious, I discuss the founding years of psychoanalysis as well as the burgeoning avant-garde art movements of the time, including Cubism, Futurism, and Dada. As many artists and intellectuals fled their homelands in search of safety during the years leading up to the First World War, they congregated in neutral Switzerland. German and Romanian poets collaborated with Zurich natives, quickly coalescing into the Dada movement and the event that was the cabaret Voltaire. Developing and expanding the techniques of collage, photomontage, assemblage, and ready-mades, the Dadaists' innovations in visual, conceptual, and performance art, poetry, and literature continue to influence contemporary artists to this day. After the First World War ended, these artists and intellectuals disbanded, some dispersing into neighboring areas as others returned to their homelands. This only served to grow the reach of their international network even further. The third part of the book, Revolution of Mind, begins with a look at surrealism as many surrealist methods and modes of creating developed out of the Dada movement. As there is such extensive research into surrealism available, I've chosen to focus on a few specific instances that resonate with the work at hand. The splintering off of Asafal is mentioned as is the publication of Minotaur which featured the early writings of Lacan. Certain artists of this period played with the concept of the double, often working directly with the body, exploring subjectivity, positioning, dynamics of relation, identity, sexuality, and gender. This leads us into a discussion of experimental film and cinema as a total environment, followed by an exploration of various characters and happenings of the beat generation. The fourth and final section, When Art Becomes Life and Death, 
focuses on the birth of pop, performance, and street art, actions and happenings bringing artwork outside the walls of the gallery, as well as, conversely, bringing art from the streets into the art world. As many performance art collectives explored alternative forms of living, communal spaces and artist communities are also explored. As the persona and lifestyle of the artist became the focus, rather than exclusively the work of art produced, life and art merged evermore. This leads us to performance art in the form of body modification as artists explore sexuality, gender, and identity through the physical medium of their very selves. Finally, we move into the realms of the uncanny technology, morbidity, death, and transformation. So that was from the introduction. And now I'm just going to choose a little bit from the chapter on Surrealism Asafal. As mentioned, historically, Surrealism has been the artistic movement most associated with psychoanalysis. As the Surrealists actively promoted Freud's ideas, studying his writings, and explored various methods for uncovering and working with unconscious material. The Surrealists espoused the technique of free association, paying close attention to dreams, slips, synchronicity, and chance. They tended to work in any fashion they found could minimize conscious interference of the ego and the psychic sensor thereby allowing the unconscious to come through, practicing automatic poetry, writing, and drawing. There has been so much written on surrealism that I will just mention a few points of interest here. Both the surrealist and psychoanalytic movements were heavily affected by World War II, as artists and intellectuals once again were forced to scatter. Many left their homelands in search of safety from persecution as both psychoanalysis and artistic avant-garde practices were proclaimed to be degenerate. Two artists whose lives were inextricably affected were Leonora Carrington and Max Ernst. The pair first met in 1937 at a London dinner party held in honor of the opening of a major exhibition of Ernst's work, and they quickly fell in love. The couple stayed in Cornwall for a period of time with American photography Lee Miller and her husband, British artist Roland Penrose, who had organized the exhibition in London. Carrington was introduced to a community that shared her passion for art and literature and her appreciation of black humor. Carrington and Ernst soon relocated to Paris. During this time, Carrington created a painting for which she has since become known, The Inn of the Dawn Horse, self-portrait, already revealing her surrealist style. In her work, Carrington seamlessly mixed dream and reality, 
the magical and the mundane, human and animal, natural and man-made. Not long after, the couple bought a house in the French countryside where they spent their days writing, drawing, painting, and cooking. Ernst created collages to accompany Carrington's short stories, and the couple designed sculptures of humans with the heads of animals and animals with the heads of humans, which they installed as guardians and gatekeepers around their home, as well as throughout their garden. Drawing on imagery that fascinated each of them before their joint collaboration began, the artists often returned to themes of mythical and hybrid creatures, seemingly symbols of transformation. Horses and birds, both of which had emerged prior to the couple's meeting, soon became talismans and transitional beings that challenged oppositional terms like male, female, animal, human, mythic, real. They were readily incorporated into both artists' mythologies of hybridity, androgyny, and the surrealist couple, of individual freedom and psychic and physical transformation. And that's a quote from Whitney Chadwick's book on surrealism and the muses. And I will link to that as well. It's a fantastic book. Upon moving to France, Carrington also became acquainted with Leonor Feeney, who was a friend and former lover of Ernst's. Born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and raised in her mother's native Trieste, Italy, Feeney met the Surrealists in Paris in 1935. She maintained close friendships with several Surrealists, including German artists Merit Oppenheim and Hans Bellmer. However, despite participating in several Surrealist exhibitions, Feeney refused to ever officially join the group, rejecting the necessary submission to an authority figure or leader. Feeney was to become a close friend and support for Carrington during the turmoil that was to come. In 1939, Ernst was arrested as a German citizen in France. Hans Bellmer was also interned in the same prison at the same time. In Berlin, before the war, German critics saw his work as degenerate and pornographic, lacking the idealism of the Aryan creed. When Belmer came to Paris in 1938, his problems with censorship followed as the Nazis came to occupy France. Carrington spent months writing Ernst letters, bringing him gifts and meals. The prison guards relentlessly searched through what she brought for him, refusing to allow Ernst to eat the meals she prepared. Though few and far between, Ernst did continue to produce artwork while incarcerated, mostly collages and frottages or rubbings that were small enough to be smuggled out, hidden under a jacket or in the palm of one's hand. Through the intervention of a friend, fellow artist, and perhaps most importantly, French citizen Paul Eluard, Ernst was eventually released and allowed to re return home with Carrington. For a time, the couple had the opportunity to return to their life 
of writing, painting, cooking, and gardening. Carrington's portrait of Max Ernst dates from this period. However, Ernst was soon arrested again and imprisoned. This time, friends insisted Carrington leave France and arrange for her to flee to Spain, where Feeney and others had already relocated. However, upon arriving in Madrid, Carrington was abducted and raped by a group of Spanish soldiers. In distress, she fled to the British consulate, where instead of receiving the help she sought, she was declared mad. Detained in a psychiatric hospital, Carrington suffered the mental decomposition outlined in her book down below. During the Second World War, psychoanalysts were being persecuted by both the Nazi and Soviet regimes. Psychoanalysis was deemed to be a degenerate profession and therefore outlawed. Many psychoanalysts were Jewish and Freud's books were some of the first to be burned. Nevertheless, they persisted. Many psychoanalysts continued to meet in secret to study with one another and treat their patients. Freud remained in Vienna as long as he possibly could before fleeing to England on the insistence of his daughter Anna with the aid of British psychoanalyst Ernst Jones and French aristocrat and psychoanalyst Marie Bonaparte. Sabina Spielrein had returned to her native Russia in 1923, working there to facilitate psychoanalytic study and training at the newly formed Moscow Psychoanalytic Institute. By 1936, Stalin had turned violently against psychoanalysis, forcing Spielrein to work in altruistic obscurity. When the war began, she refused to believe the civilized German citizens were capable of the atrocities that had been attributed to them. That was a quote from Gabrielle Reisner's piece on Sabina Spielrein that's in the book Rendering Unconscious. Spielrein and her daughters were murdered in 1942 by the SS during the massacre in Rostov-on-Don considered to be the largest mass murder of Jewish persons on Russian territory, with approximately 27,000 Jewish and Soviet civilians massacred. In the summer of 1940, Max Ernst was once again released from prison, this time due to the influence of Peggy Guggenheim. He returned to the home he had shared with Carrington, but by this time, the house was deserted. Ernst and Guggenheim rescued a few paintings that remained there and traveled to New York, where he and Guggenheim married. By this time, Carrington was also able to make arrangements to flee Europe from Mexico via her marriage to Mexican ambassador, poet, and journalist Renato Leduc. In a surreal moment indeed, as Carrington prepared to leave Herb via Portugal, she ran into Ernst by chance. There, in May 1941, while browsing through a Lisbon market piled with vegetables and fruits, 
Leonora suddenly found herself face to face with Max. The shock was mutual and its implications quick to surface as the former lovers realized that both were now dependent on others for their survival. Once in New York, Ernst connected with many fellow artists in exile, including Marcel Duchamp, Salvador Dali, André Breton, André Masson, and Yves Tangui. Similarly, many psychoanalysts emigrated to New York at this time to avoid persecution, including Wilhelm Reich, Eric Fromm, Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, and Edith Jacobson. Profoundly influencing the psychoanalytic and broader cultural landscape in the United States. Andre Breton found in Max Ernst's works an entirely original and exhilarating form of expression that corresponded with a quality he reported he had been seeking in art and poetry. He felt that photography had rendered traditional kinds of painting obsolete dealing a mortal blow to the old modes of expression while describing automatic writing in poetry to be a true photography of thought. Breton himself had discovered automatic writing in 1919, quickly taking to it. He has described using automatic writing exclusively to write his poetry, attempting to paint pictures with words creating a succession of images and swift passage of ideas, much like a dream or flowing current of free associations. Breton wrote the Surrealist Manifesto in 1924, and with that announced himself as the leader of the Surrealist group. Jacques Lacan came of age in the same cultural and intellectual environment as Surrealism at its peak in Paris. As a teenager, the young Lacan frequently frequented the now-famous bookshop of Adrien Monnier. There he became acquainted with the likes of André Breton, Louis Aragon, and Philippe Soupault, among others. Monnier offered advice and encouragement to Sylvia Beach when she founded an English-language bookstore called Shakespeare and Company across the street. Here, a young Lacan listens spellbound to the first readings of Ulysses by James Joyce. Lacan was already interested in Dadaism and soon immersed himself in the new perspectives and early manifestations of Surrealism as well. Automatic writing, exquisite corpses, Dream exploration under Freud's patronage, praise of hysteria, whose centenary was celebrated by Aragon and Breton in 1928. In short, the bold free plunge into depths written off as lunacy by psychiatrists and reasons to live sought out in unreason itself. Here was fascination enough. Lacan embarked on his medical career at a time when interest in Freud was widespread. France's first psychoanalytic society was founded in Paris in 1926. At the same time, the literary, artistic, and intellectual avant-garde 
were embracing Freud's ideas. According to Lacan's biographer, French historian and psychoanalyst Elizabeth Rudinesco, whereas the physicians were chauvinistic and took a strictly therapeutic view of psychoanalysis, the writers accepted the idea of a wider sexuality, declined to look on Freudianism as a Germanic culture, and maintained that psychology did not belong exclusively to doctors. This is a familiar divide in the field that continues to this day. Lacan began to incorporate insights from surrealist experiments with Freudian psychoanalysis and the dominant views held in the field of medical psychiatry at the time. Toward the end of his medical training, Lacan came across an article in the first issue of Surrealism in Service of the Revolution, in which Salvador Dali proclaimed his theories on paranoia. An avid reader of psychoanalytic theory, the first Spanish translation of Freud's interpretation of dreams in 1922, had made Dali an almost fanatical Freud enthusiast. According to Rudinesco, this ideas, this encounter with Dali's theories spawned in Lacan a new understanding of language as it related to psychosis. The contents of Dali's article, The Rotten Donkey, combined with Lacan's remarkable knowledge of philosophy, contributed to the development of his medical thesis, Paranoid Psychosis and Its Relation to Personality, which won Lacan early acclaim. Lacan was careful not to note the influence the Surrealists had on his thinking, wary of the effects such knowledge would have on his professors' and colleagues' opinions of his work. However, immediately following publication, Dali praised Lacan's achievement in the first issue of Minotaur in 1933. Because of it, we can, for the first time, arrive at a complete and homogeneous idea of the subject, quite free of the mechanistic mire in which present-day psychiatry is stuck. Over time, Breton became increasingly rigid in his adherence to his ideals. Rather than allowing the artists in the Surrealist fold their own freedom of expression, he became dogmatic about what techniques and ways of working allowed for maximum illumination of the unconscious, deciding definitively that only artists working in the most automatic and free associative way possible could be considered Surrealist. By the time he wrote his second manifesto in 1929, Breton had comp proclaimed the necessity of seeking out a point of mind from which man might resolve the contradiction between real life and dream. Experiment in hypnotically induced sleep and automatic writing was a thing of the past. A new field of operations must be found in political action. As a result, a multitude of artists were catapulted from the fold of the formal Surrealist movement on the direction of Breton, including Max Ernst and Salvador Dali.
Dogmatic conditions facilitated by the self-imposed father figure led to many splits throughout the Surrealist movement. Upon his break with Breton, Georges Bataille felt compelled to create a group of his own, which he called Acephal, or Headless, connoting a group without a definitive leader. Members had autonomy and agency and were encouraged to work in whichever ways they felt so inspired. The cover art for the first issue of Bataille's accompanying publication, Asafal, in 1936, was created by André Masson, who drew a rendition of Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, with no head, seemingly decapitating conventional reason. This idea of a type of headless community has been a staple of avant-garde movements throughout time. Valiant attempts occur again and again as revolutionaries challenge structures of power, but inevitably end up falling prey to group dynamics as authority and hierarchy creep back in and the revolutionary becomes the next system in place. Bataille did his best to subvert this well-worn cycle of the avant-garde becoming the next institution, aiming to avoid recreating the stranglehold he felt Breton had on surrealism proper. Similar challenges have also been present in the psychoanalytic community over the decades, as parties have split off from groups and institutions to form their own organizations. The quote-unquote proper way to conduct and transmit psychoanalysis, including the correct method of training and psychoanalytic formation, has been a debate since at least 1926. At that time, the credentials of Theodore Reich, one of Freud's earliest students, were called into question for practicing psychoanalysis as a non-physician. Reich earned a doctorate in psychology from the University of Vienna in 1912, but was not a medical doctor. In response, Freud wrote the question of lay analysis, conversations with an impartial person, in 1926, defending the right of non-physicians to become psychoanalysts. Decades later, Reich left Europe for the United States, where he founded the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis, NPAP, in New York. In Britain, there were what were called the controversial discussions from 1942 to 1944, which led to an official augmentation of the policies of the psychoanalytic training at the British Psychoanalytical Society in 1946. The community had split into camps, dividing those analysts who followed the work of Onofroid from those who espoused the theories and practices of Melanie Klein. A third group also developed that was known as the middle or independent group. In Britain, there was a clear conflict between two opposing doctrines, and the advent of a third school had forced the adversaries to conclude a treaty of peaceful coexistence. Some years later, in France, it had become evident that Lacan was not obeying the technical rules of psychoanalytic practice put in place in the 1920s and 30s. According to the rules of the International Psychoanalytical Association, 
or IPA, an analysis was to last for several years at a frequency of four to five sessions per week, each session lasting exactly 50 minutes. Lacan hadn't yet begun to use what came to be known as short sessions, but was experimenting with variable length sessions. After multiple attempts to explain and defend his theories and practice to his contemporaries, Lacan resigned from the Société Psychoanalytique de Paris, SPP, in 1953 and joined the newly formed Société Française de Psychoanalyse, SFP. In so doing, he inadvertently also left the IPA. Over the next decade, the SFP worked to obtain IPA affiliation. However, the main obstacle was Lacan's unorthodox practice. The two organizing bodies finally came to an agreement. The SFP could only be affiliated with the IPA on the condition that Lacan and his teachings were expelled. The IPA not only refused Lacan's teaching, but also threatened to ban anyone else who dared to promote Lacan's ideas. In January of 1964, Lacan began his first seminar following this excommunication. In his own words, For ten years, I held what was called a seminar addressed to psychoanalysts. As some of you may know, I withdrew from this role to which I had, in fact, devoted my life as a result of events occurring within what is called a psychoanalytic association and, more specifically, within the association that had conferred this role upon me. My teaching has been the object of censure by a body calling itself the Executive Committee of an organization calling itself the International Psychoanalytical Association. Such censorship is of no ordinary kind, since what it amounts to is no less than a ban on this teaching, which is to be regarded as null and void as far as any qualification to the title of psychoanalyst is concerned. And the acceptance of this ban is to be a condition of the international affiliation for the psychoanalytic association to which I belong. But this is not all. It is expressly spelled out that this affiliation is to be accepted only if a guarantee is given that my teaching may never again be sanctioned by the association as far as the training of analysts is concerned. So what it amounts to is something strictly comparable to what is elsewhere called a major excommunication, the latter existing only in a religious community. With this statement, Lacan laid out his case quite eloquently, while at the same time putting what he practiced into play, challenging the very structures underlying such proclamations and questioning those who claim authority. What became known as psychoanalysis in the latter half of the 20th century was hardly recognizable when compared with what Freud had originally had in mind. 
In the United States, the strain of psychoanalysis that came to be known as ego psychology flourished as its premise and practice promoted the strengthening of one's ego and defenses so that the analysand may become resilient, able to stand fast in times of stress and pressure when havoc is wreaked from the outside as well as from within. This type of psychoanalysis developed from the theories of Freud, as outlined in The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense. As her famous father analyzed her and wrote about it, however disguised, from a psychoanalytic point of view, it's no wonder Anna went to work primarily with children and developed a rigorous theory of psychic defenses. Lacan called for a return to Freud, in which he set to return to the study of Sigmund Freud's original texts, rather than continuing the debate of psychoanalytic terms and literature that had continued on since his death. Analysts in general have not yet caught up with these concepts, says Lacan. In this literature, most of the concepts are distorted, debased, fragmented, and those that are too difficult are quite simply ignored. Lacan posited that the fundamental notions of Freud had been all but forgotten, erased and pushed aside in a move of repression, whether that be conscious or unconscious, and that Freud himself had in fact predicted that this would occur. Again, quoting Lacan, this dimension of the unconscious that I am invoking had been forgotten, as Freud had quite clearly foreseen. The unconscious had closed itself up against his message, thanks to those active practitioners of orthopedics that the analysts of the second and third generation became, busying themselves by psychologizing analytic theory in stitching up this gap. If there is an image which could represent for us the Freudian notion of the unconscious, it is indeed that of the acephalic subject, of a subject who no longer has an ego, who doesn't belong to the ego, and yet he is the subject who speaks. Also Lacan, what hierarchy could confirm him as an analyst, give him the rubber stamp? A certificate tells me I was born. I repudiate this certificate. I am not a poet, but a poem. A poem that is being written, even if it looks like a subject. Lacan also brought the question of lay analysis back to the forefront. Freud had supervised and mentored people from all kinds of professional backgrounds. If one displayed the desire to become a psychoanalyst, Freud encouraged and supported formation. Over the decades, the field of psychoanalysis became increasingly regulated as medical doctors began to take a stronghold, pushing psychologists and other clinicians out of the field for decades in many places. In the United States in the 1980s, for example, psychologists had to fight for the right to be practicing psychoanalysts by filing lawsuits targeting the American Psychoanalytic Association and other authorizing bodies. 
Many psychoanalytic institutes continue to refuse to admit mental health counselors, social workers, and other clinicians having master's level graduate education or people wishing to become lay analysts who often themselves hold doctorate degrees in non-clinical fields such as literature or humanities, where psychoanalytic theory is actually more readily taught nowadays than in standard psychology graduate programs. In the question of lay analysis, after defending his position that non-physicians should have the right to train and practice as psychoanalysts, Freud concluded, It is by no means so important what decision you give on the question of lay analysis. It may have a local effect, but the things that really matter, the possibilities in psychoanalysis for internal development, can never be affected by regulations and prohibitions. Freud once called psychoanalysis the knowledge that disturbed the peace of the world. What happened? Even as early as the time of the Surrealists, psychoanalysis was seen by some as yet another method of compartmentalization and categorization. When did free association become co-opted as a means of organization and normalization? When did the focus shift away from the desire to enable the subject to speak with no intention set upon what the outcome should be? Quoting Elizabeth Rudinesco again, Lacan sought to bring plague, subversion, and disorder to the moderate Freudianism of his time. It was a Freudianism that, having survived fascism, had adapted itself so well to democracy that it had almost forgotten the violence of its origins. And I will leave it with that. So join me on June 26th uh, at Morbid Anatomy Museum Online, where I will be uh, reading and talking about uh, this book some more, Scansion and Psychoanalysis and Art. Uh, I will not be focusing on that part about surrealism and SFL and the psychoanalytic communities. Um, that's specifically, I'm reading that for the podcast for this audience. The Morbid Anatomy talk will be more focused on the last section, When Art Becomes Life and Death, um, where I talk about performance art, gender, sexuality, working with the double, um, body modification, technology, morbidity, um, those sorts of things, because that fits the morbid anatomy audience perfectly. So join me there. Again, it's at Morbid Anatomy Museum and online. And of course, as always, uh, you can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23 C-A-R-L. And your support is very, very appreciated. Thank you so much to our patrons for being there with us and helping make this podcast possible. And you can visit my website, uh, drvanessasinclair.net and the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can also sign up for my newsletter at my website on the contact page. 
the link to the talk at Morbid Anatomy will be there in the events and news sections as well. And uh, you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Raw Sin. Uh, my full name is Vanessa Rawlings Sinclair. So it's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Rawson underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah.